What's up, everybody? This is Fred Ricciani of TSC. We have right here on the line a very special guest. He is one of the most prominent names in all of combat sports, a legendary commentator, one of the voices of one championship, and now he's adding another job title to his already impressive resume, author. We're talking to the great, the voice, Michael Chavello. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. How's everything going? Fred, it's great, mate, particularly after that brilliant introduction. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I have to live up to the high standards. I'm talking to the freaking voice here. Now, I obviously want to get to everything that's going on with one championship, your decorated career, but you have a major release that's out right now that people can check out, a major project you've been talking about, and I think my audience would love to hear about it, The Commentators. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, this is a book I've been working on for pretty much the last year, and it's just come out. Uh, You can buy it worldwide on bookdepository.com. Uh, It's called The Commentators. It celebrates 100 years of the profession of sports commentary. Uh, I found out, Fred, that the first ever live sports commentary was done on radio on April 11, 1921, by a guy called Florent Gibson when he commentated a boxing fight. Now, Florent Gibson was a a journalist from the uh, Pittsburgh Pittsburgh Journal, I think it was, the Pittsburgh Post in in, uh, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. And... uh, he attended this boxing match and he had an old telephone and that's how he called the fights live on radio for the first time. And later on, many years later, he recalled that the, the, the telephone was covered in blood and he gave what was a, what he called a play-by-play of the action. So that's where sports commentary is born. So this year we're actually celebrating 100 years of the soundtrack of our lives. And the book, The Commentators, looks at over 60 different sports events and the men and women behind those events who are commentating them. And, uh, I mean, every sport you can think of, from soccer to mixed martial arts to boxing, cricket, rugby, World Series, Super Bowl, darts, Formula One, they're all in there. I cover all the sports and all the commentators. Now, is it just a historical overview, or do you actually do some interviews with some of the commentators that were involved with these legendary calls? I also have a list of contributing commentators in there that is bar none the best group of commentators ever assembled i've got the man the american sportscasters association voted or named the number one sports announcer of all time vin scully at 94 years old vin is a contributor to the book here's the guy who president obama awarded a a presidential medal of freedom here's the guy who dana scully of the x-files was named scully because of vin scully he's in the book Kathy Rigby, the great U.S. Olympian, uh, 18-year veteran on ABC Sports, Tony Award-nominated actress, is contributor to the book. Tim Neverett, who is a um, commentator for the LA Dodgers, he commentated into the World Series win last year. He's a contributor to the book. So a lot of the world's best commentators are featured in and do contribute to the book. And some of their stories and their advice is just phenomenal. You mentioned Vin Scully. For those that don't know, I mean, that guy is legendary. I mean, you pretty much listed his resume right there. I mean, such an iconic broadcaster. How did this all come about? What made you wake up and say, you know what? Not only do I want to write a book on the history of commentating, which is a cool subject, but something that's normally not at the top of mind of people, but also link up with some of these legends. You know, I think when you're doing, when, well, when I'm doing anything, I, I want to do it the best as I possibly can. If I'm going to interview someone, I want to get the biggest name. If I'm going to write about something, I want to get the biggest name involved. If I was doing a book on basketball, I'd want to interview Michael Jordan and have him involved. If I was doing a book on hockey, I'd want Wayne Gretzky. I'm doing a book on commentators. 
I want the number one guy in history. I reached out to Vin Scully, spoke to him and his people about the book and the idea for the book. And they came back and said, we'd love to be a part of it. And I'm so thrilled and honored that, as I said, at 94 years old, it does not get any more legendary. I mean, Dodger Stadium in LA is on Vin Scully Avenue. The guy has his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That doesn't happen in the commentary world, but it happens to Vin Scully. So to have him contribute to the book, and I, I do have a whole chapter about Vin in the book. And Fred, I believe that the only perfect commentary I've ever heard, you see, no commentator, Fred, will ever tell you they've done a perfect commentary. We'll always say our perfect call is still out there because, you know, it's like any artist. You listen back to your work, you watch your work, you could always do something better. And in the book, I say there's only one man who's ever done one perfect commentary. It was Vin Scully commentating Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965, where it went for a whole innings of eight minutes and 45 seconds. Vin Scully spoke 1,064 words of what is sheer commentary perfection. And again, I'm so thrilled that Vin, I interviewed him for the book, and he talks about that specific commentary and what he did that made it so memorable, so historic. And for me, as I said, the only perfect call in sports history. Vin Scully is absolutely legendary. He is definitely the GOAT. You're not so bad yourself, though. In the process of making this book and working with these contributors like the legendary Vin Scully, did you learn a thing or two about commentary that after oh. 30 years you discovered it? Like, holy crap, how did I how did this not come to mind before? hundred percent. And this is the other good thing. You know, the other commentators who are in the book and they've received their their copies now of the book. I mean, guys like John Murray from the BBC in the UK, who's the number one guy in the in the UK on BBC, he learned so much from the book. And he said, I've been a commentator for 30 years and I didn't know what was involved with some of this stuff. For myself, for my own one championship commentary, I learned from guys like Vin Scully, Tom Durkin, the great racehorse caller from the USA, um, you know, Tim Neverett from the LA Dodgers, Keith Queen, a 10-time Olympic Games commentator, Bruce Breslow, a 10-times Olympic Games commentator. I've learned so much as well just talking to these guys and seeing what they do in their commentary process that now I'm starting to bring some of that into mind. I got some tips and stuff off Vin Scully and watching Vin Scully's commentaries that now I'm incorporating into my own work. And I think that's what any good artist does is they look at other artists and they go, I like that. That works. I'm not going to copy it. I'm not going to plagiarize it, but I'm going to bring that aspect into my own work to elevate my own work. And it's one of the beautiful things about the book that if you are interested in commentary, if you're interested in broadcasting, um, this is the book to read. And I can't reveal what college yet, but a very prominent East Coast college in America who's had some very famous alumni is actually going to put the book on its curriculum for its students later this year, the students that are doing sports broadcasting. So I'm, I'm thrilled with that. Super happy for your success. We have a lot of mutual friends. A lot of them have always spoken very highly of you. And I'm sure the book is freaking awesome. I didn't get a chance to dive in yet because I wanted to come in with a fresh mind. And man, you got me even more hyped for it. Now, as far as your commentary journey, a lot of people right now know you from one championship. Folks, if you're not familiar with one championship, they're only the biggest MMA promotion, or I should say combat sports promotion in the entire continent of Asia. And that's not putting it lightly. But before then, of course, you've done other MMA, you've done kickbox, you've done multiple sports before. You've been doing this for 
what, about 30 years now? Yeah, you know what? Actually, 30 years on the dot. My first commentary I ever did was in 1991, so 30 years this year. Wow. I started commentating uh, fight sports uh, 1994, so in 27 years I've been doing fight sports. I remember my first kickboxing commentary was 1994, and Fred, uh, it was a local promoter here in Melbourne that asked me to commentate his kickboxing fights for him, his kickboxing show, because he'd heard me on radio commentate soccer. And he liked my enthusiasm and my passion. And I, I knocked him back and I said, mate, I, I can't commentate kickboxing. I don't know enough about it. I have never done it. I'm not confident. He begged and he begged and he begged. And he said, I think you've got a talent for it. It might lead somewhere. It might not, but you'll have fun. I'm so glad, Fred, that I did it. And I had a talent for it. Other promoters recognized that. And when pay TV came to Australia a few years later in 1996, Fox Sports contacted me and said, hey, we want you to commentate for us. I was 21, 22 years old. And I'm like, on national TV all of a sudden. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been given the opportunities. But also, Fred, it's a, a really important piece of advice. I give people never knock back an opportunity. Always say you'll do something. And if you don't know how to do it, say yes, go away, study like crazy, and then come back and do it. And in the book, there's a great example from Bruce Breslow, who has commentated 10 Olympic Games. He's in the Nevada Sportscasters Hall of Fame. Bruce was offered the handball gig in 1984 at the LA Olympics, and he knocked it back originally because he didn't know anything about handball. But then he thought, this is the only way I can get to commentate the Olympic Games. So he went to the library. He found the only book that was there about handball. He checked it out. He read the thing cover to cover four or five times until he knew it better than the Bible. And he went and he commentated the 1984 Olympics handball games like an expert. And from that year on, every Olympic game since 84, they've called Bruce Breslow back to commentate across all sports. He commentated the Dream Team basketball in 1992. He just got back from doing the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, it all started because he bit off more than he could chew and he chewed like crazy and he believed in himself. So it's my advice for everybody. That, that's some fantastic advice. Now, did you always kind of dream about being a broadcaster or getting into TV in some sort or did you kind of stumble upon it? No, never. You know, when I was growing up, Fred, I wanted to be an architect. I don't know why. I just enjoyed drawing. I liked drawing houses. I thought it was cool to be an architect. And when it came time to do work experience or an internship in uh, when you're 15, 16 years old in Australia, I, I wrote away to architecture firms, 20 of them. Didn't get one response. Not one. Not even a no. And I was in tears to my mum crying. I remember this vividly. And my mum said, you've got a good voice. Why don't you do radio? And I'm like, radio? Really? I no, I don't have a good voice. I don't want to do radio. Just do, do radio, she said. Humor me. So I did. I wrote away to my favorite radio station. They wrote back straight away. Said, yes, come on in. I went in there, Fred, and the lady from the station looked me up and down, and she said, uh, what do you want to do in radio? And I'm thinking, I don't. I, I want to be an architect. I'm just here to humor my mum. So this lady said to me, her name was Deanne Sloan, and she said, I've got a good feeling about you, Michael. I'll put you in the newsroom with our journos, our journalists. So I went in this newsroom, all these buttons and microphones, consoles, etc. And Fred, I fell in love with radio and broadcasting and media straight away. Every thought of being an architect went and all I wanted to do was broadcast media. Well, and you never attempted it like whatsoever. You didn't do you didn't you weren't any like any, any AV club in high school, nothing. It just nope. kind of got in cold and you're like, oh my God, where have you been all my life? Mate, cold. I went in cold and 
even what you know the result of what you see today i i taught my i taught myself everything there's no broadcasting degree you know there's no college degree diploma hanging on my wall i've got a high school certificate that's it everything else writing commentating i taught myself over the years and i'm still learning like i said i'm learning from the guys i interviewed for my book they've taught me so much and these are lessons i believe you can't get at a at a broadcast school you know, these are important lessons. So I taught myself, and I hope that other people will also realize you don't necessarily need a diploma on the wall. You just need to get out there and have a lot of self-belief, have passion, enthusiasm, and most of all, make sure you're committed to hard work. Spectacular advice. What, what an incredible journey. Your journey now has taken you in recent years to one championship. Now, back in the day when I first interned and then first got my real first real TV gig. I was, a, I was a part of Spike TV and a freelance basis. We worked on, on a feature on a little promotion called 1FC. Years later, now known as 1Championship. This year in recent months, it even aired on TNT. Massive social media following some of the legitimate best MMA fighters and combat sports athletes in general in the world because, of course, they do kickboxing and Muay Thai as well. Man, how has your 1Championship career been treating you so far? It's been amazing, you know, and you said there the little you know wrap up of where one has come from. I mean, 10 year anniversary this year and to have gone from a very small startup organization to what it is now broadcast to 154 countries. You know, Nielsen rating, uh, we peaked at 81 million viewers just on TV, over 6 billion views of our videos online over the last year. That's again, Nielsen rated. I mean, it's incredible. One championship the whole team is just so passionate and enthusiastic and they put their heart and soul into, into every bit they do. It's, it's, a, it's an enormous company. I mean, you go to the one headquarters in Singapore, it's, it's a massive, man, a whole floor overlooking Singapore, up on the 14th floor, hundreds of employees, and everyone's like a cog in a wheel and every cog is so important and everyone does their job to the best of their abilities. And, um, you know, they know martial arts. It's run by Chatri Sichitong, who himself, a martial artist, long-time former Muay Thai fighter, you know, Harvard graduate, MBA, um, stunning businessman, uh, you know, former, formerly was employed on Wall Street uh, and knows business, knows martial arts. And that's important. That he knows how to treat martial artists and he knows how to convey and how to present the martial arts business for, for a huge you know, global audience. And uh, I think it's one of the best things about one championship. And would you say that's what separates one championship and why they've sustained success for 10 years? Because you've, you know, I've both been a part of or, or worked with promotions that are, well, no longer here right now or mere shells I, of, the, of their former selves. So what would you say is the one thing that has kept one championship going? You know what it is? It's many things, but rolled into one, it's passion. Because when you work at one, whether you're a commentator, a producer, a director, the ladies answering the phones, okay, you're a fighter, you're a high up, whatever you are, it's the passion that the whole atmosphere of one instills in you. You are proud to work for one championship. You want to give your best to one championship. You're always looking to outperform yourself from the last show, you know, and, and the, the, the way that we, we meet every week, you know, production meetings, our whole team, we go through, you know, the storylines, the backgrounds, and the graphics, and you know, 
how we're going to make each show and improve each show. It's just those details. It's so detail-oriented that what you see, the final result you see on TV, is the result of so many months and hours of planning and dedication. And that's what I think sets one championship apart. Uh, it's just that, that passion that everyone in the organization has for their role, no matter how big or how small it is. I got to ask you a hardcore MMA question as a hardcore MMA fan. Are you surprised to see Shinya Aoki still competing at a high level? Yes. Yes, I am. I thought Shinya might have retired a while ago. I mean, I've commentated Shinya, I can't remember. First time might have been back in 2008, somewhere around there. Um, and he was peaking back then, we thought. And then he had a bit of a slump in one championship. He lost the world title you know, against Edward Falayang. He captured a world title back. He lost the world title against Christian Lee. And I thought after that, all right, you just lost against Christian Lee, who was still you know, young at the time. It still is young. And, and wasn't the big name that Christian is now. And I thought maybe it's time for Shinya to hang it up. But man, then he comes back again. You know, you can't write him off. And it's almost like Shinya is experiencing this, this, uh, this renaissance period. Like it's the Shinya of old. It's a killer Shinya Aoki we're seeing. He goes in there, no BS. It's like he goes in there to rip arms off, rip legs off, to tap you out and do so in a painful fashion. And this is the Shinya I enjoyed back in the dream days. We all grew up loving this Shinya Aoki. So, mate, you asked that question, and yes, I am still surprised that he's still here after so long because in 2008, I would have thought, wouldn't have thought I'd been commentating him in 2021. And after he lost to Christian Lee, I thought he was, you know, say goodnight, go quietly into the into retirement, but he's still going. He is still going. It's it's pretty incredible. Do you remember whose arm he broke? Yeah, it was Harata. Yeah, I, I mean, think it was his name, Harata. Yeah, uh, that was at the Dream versus Sengoku uh, New Year's Eve Dynamite match. So team, uh, which was great, and, and hopefully we can do it in the future with maybe one versus UFC, you know, one versus Bellator, Bellator versus UFC. But it's when Sengoku and Dream put their two best teams together and they went head to head. And I believe that was the main event. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, look on YouTube. Aoki puts, I'll call him Harata. I may be wrong, but I'll call him Harata in a, in a chicken wing. So arm behind the back, very painful. I can already feel the pain in my shoulder. And Harata wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't tap out. So Aoki being Aoki, you see it on the TV, tweaked it and, and, and broke his arm. And he broke it in a painful place. Breaking your arm here is bad, but breaking your arm here is horrid. He broke it there. And it was shocking. Then he flipped him off, gave him the double birds. It was epic. But um, hey, that's that's part of Aoki's character, man. Was that up there with some of the, the wildest, craziest stuff? Oh, yeah. Sports? You know, cement that position of dream against Sengoku fighters to break the guy's arm was such a, a stamp of authority. Even though it was mean, it was just, man, it was awesome. One of many, many tremendous moments over, over a long career. I first discovered you when you were doing commentary for HGNet, now known as Access TV for K1, for Dream, for Showtime. I mean, literally everything under the sun, you were pretty much doing commentary for, usually with Mayhem Miller or Guy Mesger or Boss Ruiner, whoever they had at the time. And not saying you're not having fun now, but I, I think the reason a lot of people like myself became fans of your work and fans of the MMA that was broadcast at HD at the time was because you guys looked like you were having so much freaking fun. I, mean, I remember was a, there was a fight where Badahari knocked out Alistair over him, and you guys were just like marking out. And... Yeah, I think those are usually the best broadcasts when the announcers themselves, the, the voices that are speaking to directly to us, are having fun. I mean, do you just describe the amount of fun you had at that time? Not saying one's not 
not awesome, but it was a special time because the UFC was still growing. MMA wasn't oversaturated in North America yet. It was still, I would say, an underground thing, but HTML was kind of like a haven <laughs> for the hardcore fans that lived on the forums like myself. I mean, can you just describe that awesome time in mixed martial arts? It was a whole formula that we had that, look, when I was signed by HTNet, later Access TV, it was done through Mark Cuban himself. Cuban had heard me on one of the K1 broadcasts from back in 2008. Uh, he was up early in the morning, you know, because it was broadcast live to America, four in the morning, watching the show on HDNet. And I'd said something like, Semi Schultz has as much personality as a head of lettuce. And apparently, as the story goes, from what I was told, this made Cuban laugh. He rang Andrew Simon, who was the CEO of HDNet Fights at the time, and he said, hire this crazy Aussie. I want him. I got the offer from HDNet, moved to America, started working there. And the beauty with that was that I knew that Mark Cuban enjoyed that sort of wild side commentary that I was, I was known for, you know, press, uh, pushing things to the limits. And HDNet didn't put any handcuffs on me. I pretty much could do whatever I wanted. I think maybe I got slapped over the wrist once. But otherwise, I mean, I got away with a lot because of my Australian accent and because of, you know, there's a lot of conservatives in America and a lot of sensitivities in America. And the stuff that I said that I was told later if I was American, I might have been fired for, that I got away with because I'm Australian. And I just didn't realize that you guys were so uptight about a lot of the stuff we joke about in Australia, you know, and because of my accent, I could get away with a lot. And that sort of, I think, endeared a lot of fans to watching the broadcast is that I I, I didn't have too much of a, um, a, um, a a barometer of a point that I couldn't go past. Case in point, Danny Maynus, right? Danny Maynus, when I commentated him, I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew I was calling him my anus. Pat and I knew what we were doing, and we went for it. But the key to calling that one successfully was me not laughing because the moment I laughed in the commentary, which I didn't, it, it would have been like, oh, they know what they're doing. It's all a big joke. But the fact that I didn't laugh meant that fans watching it thought, how is this commentator saying this legitimately and keeping a straight face? Everyone's rolling around the floor dying from laughter. So that's how I had to play it for those two fights we did against um, Chavez and against Boston Salmon. And again, you wouldn't get away with that on any other network. But HDNet didn't put those, you know, those handcuffs on me. So I was able to, to deliver stuff like that. And it was such a fun time. And Whoever I was working with, Pat Militic guy, Mezga, Bas Rutten, uh, Frank Trigg, uh, Mayhem Miller, whoever it was, we, we had fun together and I got them in on the action too. And you, and you also had Inside MMA, which was known amongst hardcore yeah, fans as like right? the first like TV news magazine show that, covering mixed martial arts. And it was well, like, yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't really pressured by UFC. You know, we had no commitment yeah. to UFC. Yeah. Um, but we gave a home and a voice to these fighters that you are now seeing in UFC. Guys like Kamara Usman, you know, we commentated him. On, on HDNet back in the, I think it was the LFA days or wherever it was, RFA. Um, you know, guys that you're seeing in UFC, Brian, uh, Brian Ortega. I mean, he was another one. Douglas Lima in MFC. Douglas Lima MFC, Ortega from RFA. These guys had that early platform. Um, uh, the Black Beast, Derek Lewis was another one from LFA. So all these guys came through the HDNet system of, of fights we, we, we were broadcasting. So it's a shame that there's not that pathway anymore. Sure, you've got some of these regional promotions on UFC Fight Pass, which is great. But, you know, just to have it on a, a network like HDNet was, 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 was special, man. It was really special. So it's sad it's not there anymore.
we like to ask all our guests some kind of random rapid fire questions for the audience to get to know them better. Are you ready? Go for it. What's your favorite cheat meal or late night snack? You know what? Late night snack is something called Vita Wheat. It's a, a cracker made of wheat, and I put nutlegs uh, spread on it, which is like a nut butter. And then I put good old-fashioned Australian Vegemite. That's my favorite late night snack. What's your most awkward commentary moment? Wow. Awkward. That's a tough one, Fred. That's a really tough one. Awkward, you know, once... embarrassing, crazy. <laughs> All right. Once, uh, <laughs> once back in the Fox Sports days in Australia, a friend of mine had stepped in to be the ring announcer on a show when the ring announcer pulled out last minute. So I was sort of coaching him during ad breaks while I was on air calling the fights. And one of the fighters had won the main event and the other guy who had lost the main event, my friend was asking me in my headset, should I commentate the loser? And I said, without switching my microphone off properly, no, F him, he lost, interviewed the other guy. <laughs> it, it came across just a little bit on air. So I was told if you turned up the volume, that was pretty embarrassing. Oh man. Hey, <laughs> it happens to the best of us, man. A hot yeah. mic, a live mic can, can be your best friend and it, and it can yep. definitely be uh, your, your worst enemy. What would you say is your career defining moment up to this point? Olympic games, 2008 to be a commentator who called the Olympics, went to Beijing, did the boxing broadcast to 110 countries for the Asian broadcasting union. Just to have that on the resume, man, and be able to tell my kids, your daddy did an Olympic Games. It's something very few commentators do, and uh, that's that's the pinnacle. How'd you get the catchphrase, good night, Irene? Love of professional wrestling. Grew up loving professional wrestling since WrestleMania 1 beamed into my living room as a 10-year-old in 1985. Gorilla Monsoon was always my favorite, and Adrian Adonis was a favorite wrestler. And Adrian Adonis had a finishing move, a sleeper hold, that I heard, good night, that I heard Gorilla Monsoon call Good night, Irene. That was the name of the sleeper hold. When I heard Monsoon say, you know, Adrian, look at a slap on the good night, Irene, it sort of stuck. And, uh, you know, the strange coincidence, Fred, that years, years and years later, I would end up marrying a woman of all names named Irene. Wow. that Freaky. And I started screaming good night, Irene, with that track and field commentary in 1991 when I was 15 or 16 years old. And when I'm 34 years old, I meet a girl named Irene who I end up marrying. You mentioned pro wrestling. I'm, of course, a huge pro wrestling fan. We cover pro wrestling pretty extensively as well. Have you been keeping up with what's going on with WWE versus AEW? You know, I haven't too much. I've watched some AEW as well because my mate, uh, Jim Ross, is who's contributor also to the book, The Commentators. JR is a contributor to the book. Him, him and Tony Schiavone takes me back. You know, Schiavone takes me back to the old WCW days. Yes. And, you know, JR is just a legend. So I watched some w AEW. Uh, my son, my seven-year-old son likes wrestling, but he likes WWE. So uh, we just watched uh, SummerSlam recently. Uh, so we'll watch the pay-per-views for WWE. Um but, mate, I've got WWE Network, and in my downtime, especially when I'm in quarantine or lockdown, um, I will put on WWE Network. I will go back from the years 85 to 95. I'll watch the WrestleManias, the SummerSlams, um, the Royal Rumbles. I'll watch them all. I'm slowly going through Saturday night main events from the very first episode. I've done three years so far, my last time during quarantine, because that's my era, and I love it, and I still love it. And I just watch it all the time. I love all those characters, Gorilla Monsoon, Jesse the Body. I thought Vince McMahon was also a brilliant commentator that I learned a lot of, a lot of. And uh, that, that was my that was my vibe, man. That was my time. 
I love it with wrestling now. I mean, AEW is starting to maybe fill the void that WCW left 20 years ago or so. I'm looking around the MMA landscape, and one championship obviously has a gigantic niche, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's its market you know, in, in Asia, and it's doing great, and it's starting to make its way stateside as well. They haven't run an event stateside yet, obviously, there's a pandemic going on and everything. But are you kind of surprised, even taking one out of the picture, that there hasn't been a promotion that's kind of elicited that kind of hardcore response, that love that AEW has gotten as an alternative? It's, it's very weird with MMA. I feel like they're a lot of people are pro UFC and nothing wrong with that. They got a lot of great fighters, but you know, there's some no, other organizations that are doing pretty well and have some great fighters themselves. I mean, why do you think I'm that's not, missing? I'm not surprised, Fred. The thing that I think the problem is that a lot of MMA promotions come. I saw one on my LinkedIn today, and uh, I'd never heard of this promotion, and I won't mention it. I'll, I'll, I'll save I'll save them face. But they said. Uh, let's call it XYZ promotion. XYZ promotion is coming. XYZ promotion is going to be the biggest promotion on the planet. It will be bigger than UFC. So sign up now for XYZ promotion. This guy wrote this whole spiel on the CEO of XYZ that hasn't even appeared yet. And this is the problem that so many promotions make. Okay. They straight away state they're going to be the biggest. They're going to one day rival the UFC. They're going to go head to head with the UFC. And you can't. I mean, that's never been part of the game plan at one championship. Another reason why they've been so successful. One championship's biggest rival is not the UFC. One championship's biggest rival are the sports that rate higher than they do. Mostly NFL, IPL cricket, EPL uh, soccer, Premier League, Formula One, WWE. That's the biggest rating sports in the world in terms of digital views and in terms of television viewership. They're who Chatri Sichitong and one have always said they want to be bigger than. Never said we want to be bigger than UFC. Are we bigger than the UFC? Hey, in the Eastern Hemisphere, hell yeah. In the Western Hemisphere, of course, UFC is still the king. You know, But you go around Asia and um, it's, you know, we're on terrestrial TV everywhere. You're not pay-per-view, terrestrial TV. But the problem that so many organizations make is they'll come out and go, yeah, we're head-to-head. We'll be bigger than the UFC. Why, why even put that pressure on yourself? Do your thing. Carve your niche. Make your market. And maybe if you did that, you tried stopping, you, you tried stopping competing against the UFC, you'd make yourself the AEW is to WWE now. You know what I'm saying? Um, but that's the mistake a lot of them fall into, which is why they go under, because they shoot too high too fast. With this idea, I've got to beat Dana White. I've got to beat the Fatitas or whoever it may be. But no, that shouldn't be your, your aim. You know, I think the UFC do a wonderful job. I watch I watch UFC when I get the chance. Why would you ever try and compete directly against that? I mean, I wouldn't, do, mate, I wouldn't make my own soft drink and say I'm going to be bigger than Coca-Cola one day. That's just stupid. <laughs> but I'll make my own soft drink and say, this tastes bloody good. Go try mine. Go enjoy it. And if you like it, go tell your friends. And if all your friends start buying it, I'll put out more flavors and more flavors. And maybe one day I'll grow big and worldwide too. But I'm not going to come out and say, hey, buy Michael Chevello Cola. It's bigger and better than Coke. No, it's stupid. That's right. And I, and I think there is a marketplace out there for another promotion in North America to carve out its own market share. You're not going to put UFC out of business. UFC is like DDB. They're McDonald's. They have, a, they have so many revenue streams. But you can carve out a niche. You could definitely take some revenue. I mean, I mean, AEW is doing great live event business and, right now. They're doing and, great and look, demos. Fred, it's happening. Bellator does their thing. PFL does their thing. 
The trick is, though, mate, that there's only a certain pool of talent. That's fighters, right? Only a certain pool you can you can draw from. What they need to do is organizations, instead of signing, I mean, I'm talking about regional smaller organizations, instead of always signing guys who used to fight in the UFC and building themselves up that way, you've got to start making your own stars, telling your own stories. You know, find Fred Ricciani, who's had five fights, okay? Put him in your organization and tell us why we should care about Fred Ricciani. Why do we want to watch Fred Ricciani fight? Why is he going to be the next big thing? I don't want to hear that Fred Ricciani used to fight with the UFC and got cut by them. That's why you should watch him because you saw him in UFC. No, I want to know why I want to be excited about this guy's future. They need to build, build grassroots stars, which again, when the regional promotions were on HDNet, we were able to do that for them. So that's that's you know that's another problem at the moment. People have got to build grassroots stars. The irony here, and I think the NWA with Mickey James as executive producer recently ran a very successful all women show, which I think was called Empower. And then one championship a little afterwards uh, ran an all women show, not not related. You guys didn't copy each other; just happened to be coincidence. Uh, called Empowered. Both uh, tremendous feedback as far as far as you know, women's wrestling, women's MMA. As somebody that's been calling combat sports for a long time, do you agree with the notion that a lot of the women are not only better at putting on more exciting fights, but also marketing themselves compared to the men? Because I feel like that's the case uh, these days, especially in, in the social media age with pro wrestling and MMA. Uh, yes. I think that, uh, how do I put it? Less women dial it in than men when it comes to performance inside the circle, inside the cage, even in in boxing, whatever combat sport. The reason being that uh, still in society, women are always striving to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To be verified, okay? Always striving to show that they can do it just as well as men who are getting paid more than them in most most organizations, most sports, most jobs, etc. So women want that equality. They want to show, hey, I can do it as well as a guy. So there's an inner drive in them, not just as a fighter to get the result, but as a woman to get the result, as a woman to prove that they belong on this stage, in this spotlight, on your TV. You know, they 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 deserve to have your eyeballs watching them. And that's the thing. Men don't have that. Because for men, it's like, I've got to prove I'm the world champion. I've got to prove I can beat this guy, but I don't have to do it for all the males in the world. Whereas females is like, I want to be the world champion. I want to beat this woman, but I want to also do it for all the females in the world. And that was empower, empowering women to show what they can do. And I'm so glad we gave that that, that platform for our female athletes to do that. And that's why women, you're right, mostly give more exciting fights than men nine times out of 10 because they've got an extra point to prove. Who do you see as being one championship's next breakout star? Can I tell you who I think who I think might be the breakout star? And you can give me your opinion. Yeah, please. Based on some social media feedback I've seen, uh, Ritu Fogat. Yeah, man. Okay, you know, Ritu Fogat was my. I'm gonna go on the record again, and I've done it, <laughs> so everyone believes me. Because Mitch Chilson laughed at me, and Rich Franklin laughed at me, but the voice said Ritu Fogat would win the entire Atomweight Grand Prix. I said it months and months and months ago. She had a rough time against Mongbo in the first round. She came back and throttled Mongbo and won it. Ritu is awesome. Big social media following. Huge superstar. Only the one loss that I thought was not a loss to BNUN. I thought Ritu beat her. I thought I think Ritu is still undefeated. Um, and she's on her way. 
I believe, to the final, to winning the whole thing. She comes from a very famous family, for those that don't know. The Fogat family in India, um, I don't know what comparison I could give in America, but they made it. her two sisters, two of her sisters, Gita and Babita, both won Commonwealth Games gold medals, which is huge in wrestling. And they made a movie called Dangal, D-A-N-G-A-L, about the Fogat family and the training and what they went through. Their father was their coach. And this movie is the highest grossing Bollywood film of all time. It is also the highest grossing film at the Chinese box office of all time, making it one of the highest grossing films in the world of all time. And it's about Ritu Folgat's family. If you haven't watched it, it's on Netflix. Please watch it tonight. Um, Can you give us the name of that movie again? Dangal, D-A-N-G-A-L, which is Indian for wrestle, right? Dangal. Mm -hmm. It is like um, watching The Karate Kid almost. Uh, the way the father trained his daughters. And it's not a documentary. It's a, it's a movie. Great acting. Um, superb cast. Uh, you'll have to watch with subtitles because it's in, uh, in um, I think, Hindi. Um, but, man, you'll be glued to it. Trust me. And it's about Ritu's family. So I'm, I'm just saying she's got an entire nation who knows who she is because her family is so famous in India. And that's, that's one billion people right there. Maybe. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. Ritu Fogart, I think, is the next big breakout star. Um, Christian Lee, I think so many people keep just sleeping on him and he just handles everyone they put in front of him, handles people. I think he's another big – he's already a broken-out star, but I think he's got the potential to be a major, major star. What do you think would have been your alternate career path? What would have been my ultimate career path if not a commentator, not an architect that wasn't working out too well? Man, that is so hard. You know what? I might have gone into making shoes. My dad was a, a shoemaker. I might have taken over the family business. He was a, a craftsman making women's shoes when I was young, later men's shoes, dress shoes. Um, I might have gone into the shoemaking business. Um, yeah, might have done that. Wow. Shoemaker Chevello. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you've given a lot of advice, dropped a lot of gems, a lot of free game, as the, as the kids would say, about commentary. Is there... Any other gem that you could drop on us? One piece of advice you leave the viewers and the listeners with? Yes. It's a piece of advice I give to all people who are already commentating, podcasting, interviewing, whatever it is, but particularly commentators. Own everything you do. Own it. Make it yours. It's, it comes from confidence. No matter if you're doing a small podcast from your mum's basement, you're hosting a big TV show, you're commentating a regional show at a basketball court that has 50 people there or one championship show that has 20,000 people there. When you're on the air, own it, completely own it, make it yours, be in control. You are the quarterback. You are controlling it. Own it. Because if you don't own it, kinks in the armor are going to start to show up and people will realize it, and they'll pick you out and go, no, nah, that guy hasn't got it, so own it. That, that's I don't know how better to describe it than just own it, own it. Thank you so much, man. 1FC.com. You can check out the commentators wherever books are sold, including, of course, Amazon.com. Michael, where can fans find you online? You know what? Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Chevello Voice. Uh, that's the best place. Uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm Instagram as well, at Chevello Voice, Facebook as well. But um, yeah, guys, I'm really active with my social media. I love to see messages and I'll message you all back. So uh, yeah, hit me up on Twitter and uh, 
you know what? I, I Every now and then I give shout outs on the one shows and the live shows. And I do that through Twitter. So follow me on there and maybe give you a shout out next show.